Turn again to John chapter 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7. <coughs> we'll continue a little ways through this discourse, in this chapter, a fairly lengthy section. I don't know how far we'll go before we stop and do something of the Advent or Christmas nature, but we'll go another week or so anyway. <coughs> John chapter 7, we'll look at verses 25 to 31 today. You know, for most of us, making decisions is one of the greatest challenges of life. And the weightier the issue, the more difficult the decision-making. Even people who make decisions for a living, who make lots of decisions, uh, quick uh, judgments about things, close call judgments. When it comes to our personal lives, it's a whole different matter. We struggle with decisions that affect us deeply. Well, last week we left Jesus challenging this crowd to, and challenging us too, we might add, to uh, get beyond, to get beneath the superficial appearances of things in order to make right judgments, to look beyond uh, the, the, the appearance of yourself and look down in your heart at what's really going on, to look beyond just the superficial knowledge of God's Word and look at what the real point of it is and to make right judgments. Well, this week as we pick up in this uh, dialogue between Jesus and the crowd in Jerusalem, we find those listeners agonizing over their judgment, their decision concerning Jesus himself. Who is this? Who is this man? Where is he from? Is he the Messiah that was promised or isn't he? Of course, that's a judgment we also have to make. In fact, that is the most crucial judgment. The claims of Christ are so great that what do we do with these things? It's difficult to find some nice middle ground. Either we're all the way one way or all the way the other way in our decision, and it's a very weighty matter to judge concerning Jesus. Well, this morning perhaps we can learn something about making that judgment by listening to this befuddled crowd as they try to make such a judgment. Let me read verse 25. At that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly and not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man's from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? And we'll stop there with verse 31. As we try to form a judgment concerning Jesus, I think our text suggests some truth to consider. The first is this. You can't just trust the experts. You cannot just trust the experts. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about living in a day of experts. You know, it's kind of comfortable in a way to live in a day of experts. You really don't have to know a lot about anything. 
because there's so many experts around that know so much more than you know. I mean, who are you anyway? Just listen to the experts. And so we find that wherever we turn in life, whether we're talking about our health or whether we're talking about edu the education of our children, whether we're addressing the problems of our marriage or whether we're addressing social concerns, there are always experts out there who are happy to tell us how to think and what to do and what judgments to make. But what do we do when the experts don't agree? Perhaps you've noticed that this happens. In fact, it's quite common. Then we learn that you can't just trust the experts. It's not really that easy. You have to think for yourself. You have to make some judgment. You have to inform yourself and decide what is true, what's not true. Well, that's what's happening in this crowd here. They, too, remember, lived in a day of experts. Now, for them, the situation was a bit different than for us in that their society was ordered by the Old Testament law so that the, the, the biblical experts, the theological, religious experts, and the experts on the civil law were the same people. So their experts were like the lawyers and the theologians and the judges and the public officials all wrapped up in one, the same people, the super experts they had. These experts maintain a very prestigious image. No common person would think for a moment that they could stand against the opinion of these experts. But now this crowd is confused by the experts. I mean, it's common knowledge that their leaders were trying to kill Jesus. That the words out on the street, everybody knows they're laying for him. And yet here in the most popular holiday of the year, here he is standing right in the most public place, right in the temple where everyone's gathered, and there he's teaching as he pleases. And so they, they reason in verse 25 and 26, what's going on here? The leaders aren't touching him. The leaders aren't saying a word. They're not stopping him. Let me just read it again. Here he is speaking publicly. Or before that, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? Well, they're still depending on the experts. They're just trying to second-guess them now, read between the lines. What's going on? What are the experts saying to us? What are our leaders? Which way are they leading us? They're saying one thing. They're doing something else. Now, as we read on down through the passage, we find that there's lots of reasons for the inactivity of the leaders. The fact that they didn't do anything yet because they didn't agree among themselves what to do. We find out toward the end of the chapter. And another thing, as the crowd is watching to see what the leaders will do, the leaders, like good politicians, are watching to see which way the crowd's going because they don't want to disturb the crowd too much. So here everybody's watching everybody, trying to figure out what to do. And meanwhile, the crowd is having to learn this very important lesson. You can't just trust the experts in this matter of the identity of Jesus because they're not giving clear guidance. Now, folks, that's still true this morning. There are lots of experts around. There are a lot of religious experts, experts in Christianity around. Seminaries are full of people with doctors of theology degree. Pastors have, uh, churches have pastors that have years and years of education. There are books coming out, books and books and books by experts on every conceivable subject concerning the faith. And all those experts still don't agree. I'm not saying it's all right that they don't agree on something that's crucial as the identity of Jesus, but they don't agree. 
Sorry, it's just a fact of life. You can't just sit back and trust experts. Oh, this is an old problem. This desire to take someone else's word for it and have it settled. I ran across a quote this week from Martin Luther. He says, nowadays people generally say, what shall I do? I'm only a layman. I'm no theologian. I do not understand matters of theology. How do I know what's right or wrong? I go to church, I hear what my minister says, and him I believe. But that wasn't good enough for Luther. Luther insisted that every person must learn the faith for themselves. You can't just trust the experts, not even your minister, not even this minister. I remember an incident several years ago, probably 10 years ago, when I was flying for the Air National Guard and pulling Air Defense Alert. And we sat there and had a lot of time together. And one night about the time that the crew chiefs were changing their shift, <coughs> the new crew chiefs came in. <coughs> a young man named Tony came in. He was really upset. So we went through the official part, the briefing, all the stuff we had to do. And then we had hours to kill. And we sat around. And I said, what's the problem, Tony? Well, he went to see this movie that was showing In Search of Noah's Ark, I think was the title of it. Are they going to find Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat? And he was all excited about it. He thought, man, he just, wow, I can't believe it. He was all excited. He went to a church committee meeting the very next night. He was very active in his church. And he brought it up in this committee meeting. He started to talk about how exciting it was after seeing this movie. And his pastor immediately squelched the whole discussion. His pastor said, they're never going to find the ark because there isn't any ark. There wasn't any Noah. There wasn't any flood. It's a big myth. Poor Tony, as he was telling me this, there almost tears in his eyes. And he's saying, Bert, I learned those things at that church. And now I come there and they're telling me it's all a bunch of myths. What am I going to do? What do I believe? And my answer to him was the same as my statement to you this morning. We learned from these people. You can't just trust the experts. You're going to have to pick up your Bible and find out for yourself. This morning, if you are just sitting back and letting your faith rest in what some expert says, you're in trouble. The Lord expects more than that from you. He holds you accountable to find out for yourself. In the New Testament, when the gospel is spreading throughout Asia Minor, over into Greece, Mediterranean, Great Apostle Paul is going and proclaiming a man of great credentials. Maybe the ultimate New Testament expert beyond the Lord himself. But we read that in the little town of Berea that the people there were more noble than the others. You know what they did? When the great apostle came and he started telling them about Jesus and the identity of Jesus, they said, just a minute. And they went back. Started looking up the references. Read for themselves. See if it really is what the scripture said. Wouldn't believe it. Wouldn't even believe the great apostle Paul till they saw it for themselves in the scripture. More noble. Can't just sit back and trust the experts. Folks, people gave their lives to win this opportunity for you. I was reading this week about William Tyndale. In the 17th century, he saw the terrible ignorance of the Bible, even among the leaders of the church. 
And he said the only answer to this is that the people have got to have the Bible in their own language where they can sit down and read it for themselves and know. And he set out to do what had Wycliffe had tried to start, but what really hadn't been done to translate the Bible into the English language. And of course the church leaders were against him. He said once to one of those clerics, if God spares my life, says Tyndale, before many years pass, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. He gave himself to this task, to give people Bible in a language they can read so that they wouldn't have to trust some expert who was dealing with his own ignorance. They could know for their own selves. And for his trouble, they imprisoned him and finally strangled him and burned him at the stake. People have paid too dearly for this opportunity that you have. You can't just let it pass. You cannot sit back and trust the experts. You must see for yourself concerning what God says about Jesus. Plus, it just doesn't work to trust the experts. There'll always be another expert opinion to confuse the issue. Well, that's the first thing I think we learn from the example of these people. There's another thing, though, I think, that we learn. And that's this. Pop theology will lead you astray. Pop theology will lead you astray. Now, I've noticed in my preaching and teaching that even here in this wonderful church, as is true in almost all of Christianity, people don't like the word theology very much and doctrine. They don't, those are bad words. I mean, if you're a pastor, maybe a minister has to deal with that kind of stuff, especially if he wants to be a really boring minister. But the rest of us who live in the real world, we don't want any part of theology and doctrine, right? Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but every one of you does theology. Every one of you has a doctrine, a, a doctrinal perspective. Now, you don't call it that, and you may have never read a theology book, but you do theology. You make some judgments. You learn, you think about God, and that's what theology is. If you say, I believe in God, that's a theological matter. What God are you talking about? There are thousands of gods that people believe in. Which one did you have in mind? It's a theological issue. How did you determine that that's the true God? You say, well, I believe all gods are the same. Oh, really? Well, that's a theological position. That's not held by everybody. There's a lot of people have died over this issue. How did you come to that conclusion? On what authority do you believe that all gods are the same? You see, you cannot avoid it. You do theology. Call it what you want. You do theology. The only issue is whether your theological work will be true or false. What kind of tools you use, whether you would do it well or do it poorly. Every human being on the face of the earth does theology. Now, the people in our text probably didn't like to think much about doing theology either. As we saw earlier, they were inclined to just let the experts do it. The Bible scholars the theologians, the teachers of the law, let them decide things. They know all about that stuff. Ah, but they learned they couldn't do that. They couldn't just trust the experts. The experts didn't decide nice and neatly. They disagreed. 
They said contradictory things. They played politics with the truth. They just confused people more. That's what experts also do, isn't it? And so now these people are forced to make some theological distinctions on their own. They're forced to decide some things, to polish off whatever old tools of how to decide issues concerning God, how to decide theological matters, to polish off whatever tools they have and use them to make this most crucial decision, who is this Jesus? Like it or not, you're in the exact same position as they. Experts disagree. You've got to use whatever tools you have because you must decide who is this Jesus. Well, what theology did they know? What tools did they pull out? What did they have? They used what I would call pop theology. In every field, in every discipline, whether it be medicine or education or psychology, science, in every field there are those views that are being carefully studied and discussed by people that are doing that for a living and other people who are just reading and interested in knowing. But then there's a whole other set of views that are floating around out there, popular views. And those popular views, which have a wide following sometimes, include everything from pretty sound ideas to really dangerous ideas, totally out-to-lunch ideas. Popular ideas about psychology or education or medicine or whatever it might be. Most of them have some little piece of truth that has been mixed liberally with a lot of common sense and a lot of common nonsense and a good dash of tradition and a whole ton of misinformation and a bunch of fantasy and it comes up some little pop principle that people believe. Now the same thing happens in regard to our knowledge of God in our theological pursuits. There's pop theology around. Views that are widely held but they're just popular views. They're not real views that anybody actually got from the scriptures and discussed in some informed way. They're just pop theology views. Well, that's what's at work in this crowd in Jerusalem. Actually, between here and the end of the chapter, there are three different times when this crowd holds out some pop theology view, some common notion that was around about the Messiah, and used it to make some judgment. The first one's found right here in verse 27. Let me read again. Verse 27. We know where this man is from. When the Christ, here it is, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Where did they get the idea? When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Well, yes, the Bible talks about him appearing. That doesn't mean nobody will know anything about him. Actually, they reason this way. The experts over here are acting like Jesus might be true. Could that be? Somebody says, well, you know, I heard somebody say that when the, the, when the real Messiah comes, nobody will know where he comes from. Did you hear? Yeah, I heard that too. 
That's right. Nobody's going to know where he's from. Oh, but we know this guy. He grew up in Nazareth. We know his home. Mary and Joseph. He has brothers and sisters. Worked the carpenter shop. Ah, this is easy. He's not the Messiah because we know where he's from. Makes it simple, doesn't it? This is the tool they used to make this most crucial decision. A little saying that was floated around. Actually, we found the saying somewhere outside the Bible. Three things come unawares. A Messiah, a found article, and a scorpion. When the Messiah appears, it's going to be as unusual as being stung by a scorpion. A little pop theology floating around, believed by the crowd. Made it nice and simple, but it led them astray. Can you imagine the absurdity of what they did here? Think about this a minute. The genius of the gospel, the genius of God's plan of redemption is he didn't just write some law across the sky. He didn't just zap people with lightning. But God became flesh and came to dwell among us to where we could see him and touch him and hear him up close and personal, know him, living among regular folks in order that we might know God's plan and that he might accomplish God's plan, walked in our shoes, suffered what we suffer, enjoyed what we enjoy, the genius of God's plan, and here they threw it all out. Why? On what principle? I heard somebody say that when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from. Pop theology. That's easy to bust on these people for doing that. But I challenge you. Would you have done better? If you were faced with this man preaching, teaching, how would you have decided whether he's true or not? Where would you have gone for your information? On what basis would you have judged the situation? On what basis do you judge the situation now as you make decisions concerning him? Are you using sound theological principles that you've got from God's word? Or do you even know what you're using? You see, we have a lot of pop theology around today, too. I tried to think of some examples. Here's, a, here's a, some simple ones, some obvious ones. You ever heard this little theological principle? God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, oh yeah, I've heard that. We believe that, right? How about this one? Everybody has a free will. Yeah, all right. How about this one? You can't love other people till you love yourself. God wants you to feel good about yourself. Self-esteem is really important. You've got to love other people, but you can't love other people until you love yourself. Now, those sound pretty good. We've heard all of those have a little shred of truth in there somewhere. But that shred of truth has been mixed with so many other things that those are useless principles to us to decide anything. Yet, those are commonly believed principles. So along comes somebody and he's preaching a Christ who says you're so totally helpless that you cannot help yourself. You're beyond help. In fact, sin so permeates your person that even your will, even your ability to choose is all messed up. And unless God picks you out of that, you'll never choose the right thing. Your free will is distorted, messed up. But Jesus calls you to lay aside your life and to lay aside your self-interest and to say no to yourself and to say no to your desires and instead to rise up and follow him and be his servant. Unconditional surrender. We say, wait a minute. 
That makes me feel bad about myself. God doesn't want me to feel bad about myself. Wait a minute, that tramples over my ability to choose. Man, I've got a free will here. You're saying my will isn't trustworthy. Wait a minute, you're saying I can't help myself. That must not be right. I can't believe that kind of gospel. I can't believe in that kind of God because I know better. On what basis? Pop theology. It's everywhere. There are many more examples of it. This morning, I just challenge you. I challenge your assumptions. Those things that you think you know. Some of us have grown up with a lot of good teaching, and we assume that what we know is true. I challenge you, can you show me in God's word where it says that? Because if you can't, you've just jumped on the bandwagon of somebody else's theology too. Just another kind of pop theology that will lead you astray, will cause you to reject the truth because it doesn't fit your plan, doesn't fit your ideas you can't just trust the experts. You can't just go with the flow. Pop theology that's around everywhere, whatever everybody else thinks. It's time to hear the claims of Christ for yourself. And that's the final thing we want to say here. That only Jesus knows the Father firsthand. Only Jesus can bring us to God because only Jesus knows the Father firsthand. Now, there's a widespread view in this country, and probably lots of places, that everybody really knows God. We just know him by different names, or we know him better than others. But Really, everybody knows God. Well, maybe you need to hear Jesus' views. He doesn't agree with that. Look at verse 28 and 29. Jesus said, still teaching in the temple courts, Jesus cried out, yes, you know me, you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus is pretty passionate about this. It goes from saying he was teaching to saying he cries out in the temple court. Now, he doesn't deny what they do know about him. Yes, he is from Nazareth. Yes, he did grow up in a carpenter shop. Yes, he does have these brothers and sisters that they know. But what he says is you don't begin to know the whole truth. You've let the one little piece that you know about me blind you, but you don't know the big truth. The big truth is, though I'm so much like you in so many ways, the big truth is I'm categorically different than all of you. I was sent from God the Father, he said. I do not act on my own. I only do what the Father says. Jesus says that he knows the Father personally. For he came from him. The Father sent him. And he goes on to say, everyone else, you do not know the Father like I know the Father. Oh, make no mistake, Jesus claimed that only he knows God firsthand. Consequently, the only way that we will ever know God is through Jesus. That's a fantastic claim. 
Did we misread that? No, this is what the Bible says in other places. In John chapter 1, the word, the eternal word, a, 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 a view for, a, a, a label for the name for the Son of God, for God eternal, the word became flesh, took human flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. No one has ever seen God, John writes, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's right hand, he's the one who's come and shown him to us, made him, made him known. Or in John 14, Jesus says very, very boldly, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, he says. Or in another place in Matthew 11, Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to make him known. Wow. Those are fantastic claims. Folks, nobody in the whole world is making those claims. There are thousands of religions, but I know of no religion where anybody makes that kind of claim. All kinds of people will say that they know God and they can help you know God better. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I alone know God firsthand, and you can only know God through me. That's a different kind of claim than other religions make. Well, we've got to make a judgment about this. What are we going to do with this? This man sounds like the most narrow-minded man ever. Doesn't he? He sounds like the greatest egomaniac to have ever lived, doesn't he? He sounds like a blasphemer, doesn't he? Taking God's place for himself. Oh, it's easy to see why in the very next verse they seize him, try to seize him to destroy him. No one has the right to talk this way. No one has the right to be so exclusive to say that I and I alone know God personally and can enable you to know God. Who dares to speak that way? Nobody has a right to speak that way, do they? Unless it's true. So which is it? What a narrow choice. Either true God or blasphemer. Either perfect son of God or self-centered egomaniac. What a choice. What a choice. How are you going to decide? That's the narrow decision that we're forced to make concerning Jesus. Now that bothers people. How can God be so narrow-minded? How could you believe in such a God? In his helpful little book, Reason to Believe, R.C. Sproul addresses this claim of a narrow-minded God who provides salvation only one way, and that's through Jesus. He addresses that kind of a problem that people have with Christianity. 
does an interesting thing. Let me just relate it to you. He says, just for the sake of argument, just for the sake of discussion, whether you believe this or not, I mean, even if you don't believe it, just humor me for a minute, and, and suppose, just suppose, that there really were a God like the Bible talks about who existed forever, who's holy and righteous and good and powerful. Just suppose, even if you don't believe it, suppose there is such a God. And just suppose that he created a world and he created mankind and put the first human beings in this world in a beautiful place where he lavished good things on them. Just suppose that happened, like the Bible says. And just suppose that that first man, the minute God's back was turned, disobeyed God, ungrateful wealth, disobeyed the one command God gave. But just suppose that this God loved his creature so much that instead of just destroying him like he said he was going to, he said, I'm going to redeem you instead. But just suppose that, like the Bible says, that the descendants of that first couple just continued to do more and more and more wickedness and wickedness until the world was just seething with wickedness. God felt compelled to judge it. But just suppose that God says, but judgment is not just enough. I'm going to redeem this people. And he saved some for himself. And he created a little nation where his name would be known that he would preserve, through which he promised to bless the whole world someday. And he, and he delivered them from slavery, and he kept them for hundreds of years, and he gave them his law, and he lavished them, and he fed them, and he miraculously took care of them for hundreds of years. But just suppose that that people so, so chosen and so blessed by God broke his law, said we don't want any of what he says, we won't do it his way, and instead they bowed down and worshipped every other kind of creature they could find, but not the creator. But just suppose that God in his mercy said, I'm going to send them to prophets. I'll, I'll tell them more. And he sent them messengers. And they hated the prophets, and they killed them and mocked their message. And so just suppose that this God so filled with love for his people they were so disobedient. Just suppose he said, okay, I'll go myself. And he sent his son who, to come and to live as one of these creatures. And to do good and to heal and to show them the grace and the mercy and the kindness of the creator. But they mocked him and they ridiculed him. And they rejected him and they tortured him. And finally they murdered him. And yet suppose... Just suppose that God loved them so much that he told that he accepted the murder of his own son as punishment for the sins of the murderers. Just suppose that God offered to his son's murderers total amnesty, complete forgiveness, transcendent peace, cleansing, eternal life, ultimately freedom from sin and sorrow and dying. Just suppose that God poured out his grace like that. And suppose God said to these people, there's only one thing that I require of you, and that's this. You simply must honor my son. 
honor my son. Worship and serve him alone. That's all I require. Would you then, supposing God did all of this, would you be willing to stand and look God in the face and say, God, you haven't done enough. You're narrow-minded. You're a bigot. How can you require that I honor your son? Dr. Sproul concludes that kind of argument by saying in light of the universal rebellion against God, the issue is not why there's only one way, but why is there any way at all? That is a question I have no way of answering. Folks, that is Jesus' claim. That that's what God has done. That it's not just supposition. That is the truth. And that he has come as the ultimate act of God's mercy and grace. The only one who knows the Father firsthand. To come and to save a people. To give his life for ours. To save those who will honor and follow and trust. No one else knows the Father firsthand. No one else can bring us to God. That's what Jesus came to do. Whether you're trusting some expert, a dangerous thing to do. Whether you're working some pop theology, something that will lead you astray. You too must decide what will I do with this Jesus? Well, our text that we read concludes with the decisions people made. There are two different ways. A great division took place. Some said, that's it. We're not going to have this kind of talk. And they tried to seize him to destroy him, though in God's plan they couldn't do that yet. They hated him. In verse 30. You can choose to do that too. You can stomp out of here and say, I can't stand that kind of Christianity. I'm going to go find myself a place where they make me feel a little better about myself. What a narrow-minded bigot, that preacher. I won't have such a God in my life. Yeah, you can do that. Though you will face him in judgment someday. If what he said is true. But then others believed in him. Their, their rationale was this. In spite of all of their confusion, in spite of the disagreement of the experts, in spite of not quite knowing, they said, but when the Christ comes, is it even conceivable that he's going to do more than this? What more could he do than what he's done? How would we dare to reject him, whether we understand it all or not? And that's what I call you to this morning. To turn your trust to Jesus. To entrust your life and soul to him who died on the cross to pay for your sins and bring you to God. To ask him to save you. And then to begin to follow this one 
who God raised from the dead, who is the Lord of lords and the King of kings this very day. You've got to decide. Any decision other than to follow him is spiritual suicide. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, oh Lord, we get so caught up in wrong ways of thinking and deciding, making such momentous judgments, and mostly, Lord, we just try to put it all off. We try to kind of pay lip service to you because we don't want to reject you, and yet we don't really wholeheartedly believe and follow you. Oh Lord, may we not sit on the fence. May we see how crucial this decision is. May we search the scripture, know for ourselves, not just be carried away with the ideas of the day. Lord, give us grace to see the truth and to follow, to trust, to entrust our whole life to you, Lord Jesus. You who have claimed that you are the truth. Give us such insight, such commitment, such a willing heart, we pray. Amen.